when I say Rain Wilson, you say, oh, actor, maybe The Office. But what you should say is solution to one of the most vexing problems we have. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to another episode of the Chris Cuomo Project. Special offering today in the form of Rain Wilson. Why? Because it's someone you know who's talking to you about something you didn't know he knew. Namely, the big questions that all surround us about how do we get better than this? How do we get out of this, this nastiness, this cultural kind of revolt against decency and all the hate parades and the sides taking? Rain Wilson has an idea, a soul boom of an idea. That's his latest book. And before you make any of the mistakes that are, of course, derivative of the dogma that we're all dealing with, oh, it's about religion. He's going to put his weird faith that I can't pronounce on me. No, he is selling nothing but belief in better. And it's a really smart book that draws from so many quotes that you will know and want to know. And it's Rain Wilson in a way that you haven't seen or heard him before, which is talking not about make-believe, but about what is all too real. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from AG1. Man, oh man, if you are a listener, you know how I feel about Athletic Greens, okay? AG1 has been a go-to for me for years. Why? It's easier. It's price effective. And it's better. Instead of all the different bottles and how many pills and at what time and in what combinations, they did all the research so I could have complete confidence in my routine. One and done, man. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs. Gut optimization, stress management, immune support. So for me, I really combined all of these different needs into one one, which became AG1, right? Every scoop, probiotics, the digestive enzymes for gut support, magnesium, which is big for me, B vitamins, energy support, adaptogens, they're all in there in the right levels, right combinations to help support immune health. AG1 is the supplement that I trust to provide the support my body needs every day. And that's why they've been a partner for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. If you try AG1, you're going to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2, and you're going to get five free AG1 travel packs. That's just with the first purchase. So go to drinkag1.com slash ccp. Drinkag1.com slash ccp. Check it out. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Delete Me. So, Delete Me is a necessary. Why? Reality. Online boogeyman. Harassed. Scammed. Identity theft. Spam and robocalls out the wazoo. Man, I get hit with all of it. Some of it is done out of spite. I'm convinced people put me on lists and have tracking software put on me just to make my life more of a hassle. But here's the reality for everyone. Personal information is everywhere on the internet. 
you are an easy target. That's why I personally recommend Delete Me. Okay? What does it do? It removes any personal information that you don't want online and makes sure it stays off. Take control of your data. Keep your private life private. Sign up for Delete Me now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, you'll get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Cuomo. Use the promo code Cuomo at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Cuomo and enter the code Cuomo at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash Cuomo. Rain Wilson, what a pleasure. I love what you're about and what you're trying to introduce to the rest of us with Soul Boom. I'm so happy that you took this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here. So I am uh, amazed, and this this rarely happens, uh, very different. You have great talents. Uh, you have such an interesting and eccentric, as you say, background, different from mine. And yet I identify with so much of what you're putting out there. And I really hope it resonates with others also. And what I love most about it is the sense of purpose. So I want to question your optimism. Why do you believe that we can establish a we? You know, like in the title, you you just you talk about we and you talk about we as if you assume that we can have a collective interest, whereas all I see is stratification. Why do you believe that you can reach the collective? Oh, that's a great question. Um, two, two reasons. One is uh, there's a story I tell in the book. Uh, in which I was a young actor in New York City in the 90s, and I was studying with the great acting teacher, Andre Grigory, uh, the star of My Dinner with Andre, and he acted in various movies and whatnot. And he would meet with his students, and he met with me in his little apartment in Greenwich Village, and he said, so, Rain, uh, what's going on? How are you feeling? And I was like, Andre, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm pessimistic. I'm run down. I, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm cynical about the world. And this was the 90s. Things, you know, we had a balanced budget. Things were going okay in the 90s, <laughs> uh, relatively speaking. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm just kind of overwhelmed and just feeling really negative and down. And I'll never forget it to this day. It was one of the shortest conversations that had the greatest impact on the rest of my life. He grabbed my arm hard. I should have canceled him right then and there. He grabbed my arm <laughs> hard, but he was like 70 years old. And he looked into my eyes with like laser beams. And he said, don't, don't do it. You can't do it. You can't be pessimistic. You can't be cynical. If you're pessimistic, they win. If you're cynical, they win. You have to keep hope alive. You have to stay positive. You have to create joy and create hope. Otherwise you'll just sit there on your couch being cynical and they will win. And then he's like, get out of here. It was like a coach saying, go play the second half, kids. And then I stumbled out of his apartment and, uh, you know, onto Greenwich Avenue. And um, I, uh, I'll never forget that conversation. And he's 100% right. So part of it for me is kind of like uh, 
I'm, I'm skeptical that people will come together. I'm skeptical that people will come together in a united front to heal, fix, and, and unite with love until something really dangerous and drastic and horrific happens, as is often the case. Remember the way that people came together after 9-11? There was, we had a year of like collective goodwill and love and hugs. Then we made some disastrous, you know, uh, decisions, some international policy decisions. But, but nonetheless, there were, uh, you know, there was that time. So I do believe that perhaps something really terrible does need to happen. But I truly believe that anyone working to make the world a better place, we cannot afford to sit in pessimism and cynicism. I agree. And as a student of philosophy and spirituality, as you are, I do accept the idea, the maxim even, that it is choice. You decide how to feel. I can't make rain angry. Rain can't make me angry. I make me angry. But easier said than done. Uh, and we struggle with that all the time, which is part of what you're laying out in the book, uh, which I think is a really great approach, especially, and also I was looking at some of the reviews or comments online. There is zero proselytizing in this book, okay? Uh, yes, well, you're going to hear a word. I don't know how many people are ever going to have seen the word B-A-H-A apostrophe I uh, before, and they're going to say, wait, what is this? He's a, what is his faith? You got to know his story, and you got to Google the faith and understand it, and then it's not going to bother you. What will bother you is how people throughout uh, the development of this faith were persecuted for believing in something just because it was different, even though it's completely uh, synchronistic with everything else. But zero proselytizing. It's not about what you believe in. It's about what the famous Christian scientist, Teilhard de Chardin, said, all that really matters in your life is dedication to something bigger than yourself. And you see that as the root of progress. How so? Well, uh, Père Teilhard de Chardin also said uh, my very favorite quote of all time, which is that we are spiritual beings. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yeah. And that to me really lands and is in some ways the foundation of the whole book because if we recognize that we're spiritual beings and we've got 80 or 90 years riding around in our meat suits when they fall away, that we have souls, that there is a divine force or presence, we'll call it him, her, God. I have a chapter in the book called The Notorious G-O-D where I explore the concept <laughs> of God. Then this spiritual way of seeing the world needs to be something that drives how we do everything. Unfortunately, Chris, and this is kind of one of the main theses of the book. I hope that's a word, theses. It sounds like feces, but I'm going to go with theses and say that, um, unfortunately, in contemporary America, spirituality means one of two things. It either means going to church on Sunday or, you know, synagogue or going to, you know, mosque or whatever, or it means a kind of very vague general new age kind of smorgasbord spirituality where you pick and choose what makes you feel better and brings you serenity and calms your anxiety. And then you're done. So you do a meditation app or a yoga class, or you read an Eckhart Tolle book or something like that, and you feel a little bit better and then it ends there. But if we are all collectively souls going on a journey, then we are 
we're, we are waves on one sea. We are not different. They, there is an illusion of separateness between us. And we have to work for a social transformation based on spiritual precepts. And that's really what I get to later on in the book. I start with my personal story, and then I investigate some stuff like death and God and the soul and the sacred and and some of these kind of concepts. But then in the second half of the book, I'm really getting and aiming toward my thesis, which is what you said, aiming for something bigger than ourselves, which is a radical transformation and reimagination of how we do most everything based on spiritual concepts. Now, I understand that might get a lot of eye rolls and a lot of like, oh, you're just John Lennon, imagine the song and blah, blah, blah. You're, you're no, so that's naive. just the hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it might be naive, but it's, it's crucial because everything is unraveling. You know, as Yates said, the center cannot hold. And we've investigated a lot of different political tools. And you know what? They're not working out so well. We're getting more and more divided and it, things are getting more divisive and things are falling apart to an even greater degree. So how can we come together and reimagine systems based on spiritual precepts? I love it. And it's, I believe, a panacea. Uh, I, I believe it's, it's a cure-all. And, you know, there's, there's a lot there. And the book uh, gives you a lot, but uh, Rain just uh, gave you another device that he uses in the book, which is a great one. Uh, and again, maybe it's just that it resonates with me, but I don't think I'm uncommon in this regard. I love aphorisms. I love quotes because so many people have thought the words better than I ever could. So many sure. great minds have been applied to these simple and accessible ideas and Rain gets them. And so his book is, you know, just completely not littered, but it's completely sprinkled with quotes and aphorisms that really drive home these simple ideas. And they are simple ideas. They're just hard to apply. You know, I often joke that if life were a written test, I would ace it. I have no question in my mind that I would certainly get above a 97 on the written test. The practical is kicking my ass. Um, my, my ability to make the same mistakes and to have the same negative behaviors and the same feelings uh, are proof positive of that. And what they are really a manifestation of, assuming all my chemicals are balanced, you know, and I'm basically healthy, is that it's hard to do things consistently, especially alone. And I had a theologian yesterday. I was having lunch with this guy who's a, a theologian. And he said two things that really got me going. One was, he said, I don't, you know, you asked the other day, what is it to be religious? I don't know. The guy's a theologian. I said, what do you mean you don't mm -hmm. know what it means to be religious? He goes, well, I don't know. He goes, I can give you the Latin root of the word. It means to follow a set of rules, but what rules and when and who's and why? Uh, he's like, being religious is irrelevant and anybody who makes it relevant is judging and comparing. And then all that matters is how you live. The Christian faith boils down to two words. And Pope Francis said them early on. My faith is love mercy. What the derivative of that is and where that power comes from, he goes, that's, that's for me to care about, not for you to assess. Love mercy. If you love mercy, you're living your faith. If that makes you religious, that's great. But it's also completely secular. You don't, you know, you don't have to believe in someone bigger, but something bigger, which means that you're guided by a why. And he said, you know, we're all fixated on our kids. People are upset about the books. They're upset about identity. They're upset about 
reproductive rights. It always comes down to our kids, school shootings. We're worried about our kids. And yet none of us live what we're so worried about losing in our children. The things you tell your children about kindness and believing they can be safe and how they're supposed to treat each other and how they're supposed to respect distinctions and all the things that you want kept special for your kids, none of us practice in adult life. And I think that that's exactly what you're getting into with what you call a soul boom. Now we get to the boom part, which we touched on a little bit earlier. And I don't want people to misunderstand something you said earlier because you know how nasty every mofo is uh, these days. Rain lays out very well in the book that he is not hoping for something apocalyptic or uh, catastrophic to happen, okay? But if you look at American society, the reason he points to 9-11, I have, many others have, crisis unites us because we have common enemies, we have common fears in that moment. That's what 9-11 was. What really worried me Rain is that it didn't happen during the pandemic. And I don't know if it's because the pandemic wasn't bad enough, although we lost millions of people, but we decided to use it as a political football. And that scared me that, wow, this pandemic doesn't have everybody kind of putting down their signs and coming together. That's spooky. But if you think about it, it's hard to unite when you're not afraid of something. Yeah, that's that's very well said. Um <clears throat> There's so many topics you brought up. I'm not sure which one to dive into, but you know what? I feel like since you come from a political family, and by the way, I used to listen to your great father on his late night call-in governor shows back in the day in the late 80s, which were just fantastic. If people haven't heard those, you could just call the governor and be like, hey, it's Mario Cuomo. And like, yeah, governor. Why are there laws against pet ferrets? I want to have a ferret in, in New York City. And he would go on about, you know, health and safety and, you know, and government ordinance and, and whatnot. And uh, it was really fantastic. But you come from a political family. You worked on a uh, what many people would call a political news network for quite a long time. And one of the great evils, I think, of the contemporary world is partisan politics. So I feel like uh, America has um, has all of these systems in our contemporary culture that are based on the very worst aspects of being a human being. Uh, competitiveness, backstabbing, one-upsmanship, the seeking of power, uh, every man for himself, uh, to the victor go the spoils, it's a dog-eat-dog world. All of these aspects that are, for lack of a better word, let's call them the more animal side of being a human being, um, have been put into place in all of the systems that are going on in education and in healthcare. Healthcare is completely about profit. And now you've got, you know, these, um, you know, companies, investment companies buying healthcare systems and closing down, you know, hospitals and doctor's offices, especially in poor neighborhoods that aren't profitable enough. But one of the greatest kind of evil systems that we've got going right now is partisanship itself. And unfortunately, uh, we have these two sides that believe that the other side is causing the end and the destruction of the United States. And you can go into great detail on why that has happened. But that is a natural outcome of creating a system in which the seeking and acquisition of power is the most important aspect of that system. So it was always destined to head to where it is right now. It was always destined to head to a kind of January 6th 
and probably something worse because the system is is created on that foundation. And people talk about like, well, we just need to fix things. If we end gerrymandering, then everything will get better. If we have another great president like Obama or Ronald Reagan on the right, um, then everything will get better. If we can only have a supermajority in Congress, then everything will get better. But no one is having the discussion of like, hey, wait a second, let's stop. Let's, let's pause. Let's take a deep breath. Let's take 10,000 foot step back and look at America as a country and where we're at right now. And let's look at this system that is fueled by hundreds of millions of dollars that is completely about the getting and obtaining and seeking of power by any means necessary. And let's question the system itself. So some people right now, I'm going to go on an extended rant, Chris, but some people right now might be rolling their eyes again. And I use an example in the book of my faith that you mentioned before, the Baha'i faith, which has no clergy and is completely democratically elected in its administration. There is, however, in the Baha'i faith, there's no campaigning, there's no funding, there's no money changing hands. And every year, the Baha'is of, let's say, Los Angeles or New York City or Schenectady or wherever you happen to be, get together and prayerfully, with great meditation and reverence, elect nine people that they find to be best suited to conduct the affairs of that community with selflessness, humility, and spiritual service to others being at the forefront. Those are the qualities that they seek out. No one has a yard sign. No one is saying, hey, vote for me. Um, no one is saying, hey, vote for Bert. You know, there's, there's none of that. It's prayerfully done. And I bring up the idea that couldn't you do something like that, at least on a small scale in the United States? Couldn't you have like a small town in Nebraska where they get sick of partisan politics and Democrats going at it and Republicans going at it and everyone trying to raise tens of millions of dollars to run stupid ad campaigns on, on these networks that profit from all of that ad campaign money. So they want to they want to stir the, the, the fires of antagonism because they actually get paid more in the doing. Um, and they say enough of that nonsense. Let's just pick the nine people for our city council that really feel that are going to serve the town the best. And let's do it on a silent ballot way. And when someone is called to serve, they leave their job as a dentist or a police officer or a bus driver and serve the town. And, you know, can we, can we envision slightly a slight change in a system that would allow us to rise above all of this conflict and antagonism? But those are some of the ideas that I am trying to dig into and look at these huge political problems and social and economic problems through a little more of a spiritual lens. Sorry for my long rant. You take it away. No. I'm telling you, I am in a state of mild shock that someone I thought I was going to have a hard time identifying with because I had a complete misperception of what your component parts would mean. Rain's got a really interesting and eclectic background. Uh, you got to look at his parents and even what he's saying now, you're going to hear uh, Baha'i and think that it's some kind of like crunchy thing that was developed in the hills outside Santa Monica. And that's not true. It started in Persia. Uh, the leadership structure is somewhat somewhat akin to pure uh, Presbyterian uh, presbyters of having community people who are respected, but it's done in a quiet way. But 
you can you can research it on your own time. Um, I agree with every single thing you just said, and not here. I agree with everything that you just said uh, here and here. And in fact, while I was sitting in the fetal position with a tequila bottle trying to figure out uh, how I didn't see it coming that I was going to get pushed out at CNN for helping my brother. And I was trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? I've got to find some kind of value in this. I have to turn it into a challenge um, to grow. And, you know, because I, I didn't want to just be consumed by all the, you know, the easy emotions that come with any kind of disappointment or failure. And I designed the new TV show that I do on this new network called News Nation. And it is owned by a massive company called Nexstar that owns more television stations anywhere in the country. So it's not like it's, you know, um, starting out in someone's garage. But the show approaches politics only from the perspective, unless there's an exigent circumstance, there's breaking news or there's process that we got to cover, from the perspective of anti-partisan. I'm not non-partisan. I'm anti-partisan. Mm. And the idea that this is a new idea is nonsense. George Washington, in his farewell address, laid this out with the help of first Madison and then Hamilton. They were both co-authors of what wound up being his farewell address. And in it, he spent a chunk of time saying, be a nation. One of the reasons I'm not going to serve again is this stuff with the parties. I can't believe we're doing this. You're going to have men of ambition dividing you along lines of advantage and opportunism. And that is exactly where we are. It's the only place you can get when the sole value is us versus them. If it's rain or me, if that's if those are your choices, sure, he's going to win. But over time, all of that makes the you. most sense. Oh, no question. All Within my own family, you <laughs> clobber me. But only no matter what... What has to happen is eventually the straightest path to me beating rain is that rain sucks. It, it just, it doesn't work as well for me to tell you why I'm better. That's too hard. All I have to do is to play to your self-interest and your self-interest is going to be fear-based most of the time. So if I paint him as bad, that triggers your fear assessment and you'll go for me as the alternative. And that's where we are in our party politics. So what I do is I encourage people to leave the parties. And we have the term for it is I call them free agents. Be a free agent. Make the game come to you. Don't get played by the game. And I believe that that is huge, but here's why it doesn't happen. What you're asking for and what you see within your faith does happen. Happens in small communities all the time where they basically, the town council is a rotation of local business people and people who are respected or where a mayor kind of like goes on rotations of one-year terms but once money gets into it and there's enough diversity in the population to create fear-based us and them, that's when it disappears. And as long as there's so much money in the acquisition and retention of power within a two-party system, you won't change it. And that's so obvious that the men and women in power won't even pass term limits. Everybody says you need a constitutional amendment. You don't need a constitutional amendment for term limits in Congress. They could pass that law tomorrow. They won't mm. do it because it doesn't work for them. And mm. that's why the only way it works is the way you're suggesting it in the book, not that it's a political book, but is bottom up. 
The only way it works is if as individuals and then into groupings of people with similar uh, mindsets, we start to create a change in culture. That's the only way it will happen. Yeah. It won't happen top down because this works great for the people top down. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's so well said. Amen, brother. I'm, I'm completely on the same page as you. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Cozy Earth. Let me tell you. Bedding matters. And this isn't just me telling you this. In a recent survey, seven out of 10 parents said that they get an average of three hours of sleep a night in the baby's first year. Hello, Greg. Now, mommies need quality sleep, and bedding will matter. There are other variables, but here's one that you can control, okay? When we made the switch to Cozy Earth, I noticed the difference. I did not know that fabric or textiles could really be temperature sensitive, meaning if it's cold, they keep you warm. If it's warm, they can kind of cool you off. I did not know that. I know it now because I have Cozy Earth, okay? So this Mother's Day, why don't you treat the mamas in your life to the luxury they deserve with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health? Doesn't she deserve it? Mm-hmm. Don't forget, use my promo code CHRIS at checkout and you get 35% off at CozyEarth.com, okay? When you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the dropdown and that will make me very happy. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Done With Debt. Let me tell you, we're all dealing with it, especially in American culture, right? Because we're so credit sensitive. We have so much available credit. People take advantage of it. Often it takes advantage of them. High interest credit cards are real. Loans make it nearly impossible to pay off your debt. Inflation keeps just taking away what you can pay, keeps you stuck in almost a paycheck to paycheck existence. Done with debt can be a lifeline. Done with debt has this ingenious new system that gives you a way to deal with debt faster and easier than you probably thought possible. See, Done With Debt analyzes all the debt options that you qualify for. They know how to reduce bills, cut interest rates. They have a skilled staff of negotiators that know how to get debt out of your life, ready? Permanently. Done With Debt has a bunch of experts. They've been doing this, and they know the best strategies to reduce and remove debt from your life. But you got to hurry, because some debt solutions are time-sensitive. Here's how easy they'll make it. If you go to donewithdebt.com, that's donewithdebt.com, right? D-O-N-E-W-I-T-H-D-E-B-T.com, you can find the answers to your debt problems. I have a quote in the book from President John Adams. Um, there is nothing which I dread as much as the division of the republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader and concerting measures in opposition to each other. This, in my humble apprehension, is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil under our Constitution. Right? 200 years ago. Um, yep. In the end of my book, I, you know, I ended my book uh, and it, and I was finished with my outline. I was very feeling very good about it. And I realized, oh, this is a little bit depressing. And I need to write another chapter where I give people hope and I, and where I present some tools uh, 
that people can hang their hat on and turn toward. And you've mentioned some of them just in your uh, your conversation right here. So I, the last chapter of the book is Seven Pillars for a Spiritual Revolution. And one of them you just mentioned, which is it's grassroots. And I say it's grassroots, baby. And uh, And conversely, hand in hand with the idea that change needs to happen at the grassroots is a section I have called Don't Just Protest, Build Something. And this is part of the problem with contemporary culture is that we are in this mode of protesting injustice. And this especially comes from the political left. And listen, protesting injustice is part of our DNA and it's very important. The civil rights movement wouldn't have happened without it, right? But you can't stop there. And this is what is happening right now is like, you know, hey, there's this injustice. Ah, you know, like um, the guy, I'm forgetting his name, who was choked on the subway, that it had 40 prior convictions, that was really a victim really? of a failed mental health system. And this guy choked him out, which he obviously shouldn't have done. The guy didn't deserve to die. But um, it's it's a shit show. And so there's the great uh, sturm and drang right now about this guy. And then something will happen and he'll get sentenced or he won't, or the police will promise to make a change or they won't. And then, and then we'll move on and everything will stay the same because it's easy to protest. And we're in a culture of protest where you can tweet, you can rant, you can call in radio, you can go on Facebook, you can hold up a sign at a rally, and then you feel like you've done your part. It's much harder to build something. And that's, that's really hard because then you have to work with people, you have to listen, you have to consult, you have to try and create community. But that's where we need to go in terms of a spiritual revolution. I have a lot more aspects to it than that. But uh, you're 100% right that people keep waiting for some president or congressperson or bill to kind of fix things. And we're slapping Band-Aids on a cancerous system. Right. And we're doing it for the same reason that we uh, get all the different types of cancers that we think about, which is because it's easy. It's easier to oppose. Uh, Pop used to say, any jackass can kick down a barn. It takes a good man or woman to build one. And these are not novel concepts. They're easily accessed. They're pretty simple. They're just hard to do. And it's easier to go negative. When you look at any it appraisal also, of it campaign. Also, I have to say, it also, go because you've said this several times, it also polls better. Oh, if, no it didn't poll, if it didn't poll better, people wouldn't do it. But people um, act out of self-interest and it's usually fear generated. When we look at breakdowns for ads, like when my brother was campaigning and he was going to have someone do an ad assessment and a fool like me would say, you know, why isn't there more? Uh, I'm Andrew and here's what I'm doing for you. I'm Andrew and this is what I'm about. I'm Andrew. Now, why isn't there, there more uh, positive development ads as they call them in that business? And they say, here's why. Look at the polling. Nine to one ratio of what they offer up as attack ads uh, to personal promotion ads because of their resonance within the voting communities. That voters um, many times over will quote what's wrong with rain more than what's right with Chris. And that's what we play to. And that's what our politics has become, especially with only two teams. You can't be pro-Jets and pro-Patriots. You're pro-Jets, which means the Patriots suck. And it's become which a sport. is true, which is a hundred percent true. The Patriots, no, the Jets, do I'm a suck. Jets fan. Yeah, the but Patriots they win. Suck. 
and the Jets yeah. never win. Not and as a fan of the Jets, I love Not anymore. It's a Aaron Rodgers. It's the Aaron oh. Rodgers era. They've got a great defense. They've got great receivers. They've got oh. some running backs. I really believe this is their you year. You just jinxed to us. Go, to go deep into the playoffs. Nope. Right here. I'm doing a Joe Namath. Right here. Right now. <laughs> You're wearing legs pantyhose? <laughs> do you remember when <laughs> he Seahawks wore those fan, pantyhose? I do remember that. I'm a Seahawks fan, but I, I, we're really off. We're really off topic here. But any chance I can get to kind of try and diss the Patriots, I'm going to take it. But, but here's here's the deal. the The deal is is this. And people listening right now, I don't even know who your audience is. So I'm trying to picture like who the hell these people are. But you know, we're talking. Why is this? Why? What does this have to do with spirituality? So in the book, early on, I talk about two of my favorite 70s TV shows because I have a sense of humor and I like to bring some levity to the situation. There's an amazing TV show called Kung Fu from the mid-70s that was about the Shaolin priest wandering the Old West and fighting racist cowboys and looking for his brother. There's also, I bring up the show Star Trek as another idea of what a spiritual path or journey might be believe it or not. So Kung Fu to me is the personal spiritual journey. We are all Kwai Chang Kane. We're all Shaolin monks walking a, a racist, antagonistic, aggressive world, trying to do our best, trying to bring great wisdom and serenity to the proceedings, trying to grow and develop ourselves along our journey. So putting that aside, that's how most people see the spiritual path. Star Trek to me is also a great spiritual lesson because Humanity, after a great war, has solved all its problems in Star Trek. Racism has been healed. Sexism has been healed. Income inequality has been healed. And this has allowed humanity to develop its technologies and boldly go and seek out new life and new civilizations and bring humanity's wealth of wisdom and love and courage and positive qualities toward the exploration of the universe, trying to build coalition on a larger scale, we've built community on planet Earth, and now we're trying to build it in the galaxy, right? So people often don't think of the Star Trek path when they think of a spiritual journey. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith that you've referenced a few times, said, all men were created to usher forth an ever-advancing civilization. So it's part of a Baha'i spiritual mission that we have a role to play to usher forth an ever-advancing civilization, to contribute to public discourse, to building community, to fighting for social justice, for bringing people together, uniting folk, and you know, moving the ball down the field in terms of humanity becoming more and more wise and more and more uh, arrived as a species, mature as a species. This is part of the spiritual path. That's why I've kind of like gone into this kind of political side of things because we need to, again, put aside the partisanship, think about grassroots community building, and think about this as an exercise in bringing people together, loving one another in the same way that Jesus did, in the same way the Buddha did, in the same way even Muhammad did, and um, help, again, usher forth an ever-advancing civilization. Uh, just uh, the audience is uh, seekers, curious people, uh, different than my uh, News Nation audience, although there is a disproportionate number of independent voters compared to most uh, usual cable news viewing. And that's good because independents tend to be, by definition, open and a little bit more reasonable. 
also, Rain is not talking about a version of Islam. That's not what Baha'ism is. And I know you're going to think that, although yeah. the, the, the Baha'ism is. And if you do the research, you'll see, actually, Islam is one of the nations that came after this religion when it, when it started in uh, what was Persia. So, but you can do all that research on your own. The point is that a lot of these ideas are ecumenical. And um, the book is, Soul Boom, is the why, which is really important, which should really be very accessible to a lot of us because a lot of you are always saying that you want more focus on the why and what we're about and something deeper. And there's also a lot of how in the book, which is very helpful. The trick is to then look at, well, boy, this all makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing this? We're not doing it because while it can be done, it is hard and we are on a sugar diet in our culture and our politics. And by that, I mean the sugar, the sweetness, the easy rush is the demagoguery, is the fear, is the prejudice. There's a reason that the Greeks didn't give us a positive opposite for the word demagogue. You know, why is there no Greek term in political philosophy for the one who inspires by positivity and, and uh, communal strength and love? Because it doesn't work as well, because it's easier to do it the other way. And that's why we see what we see in our politics, where you have the left saying, boy, the people on the right are crazy. And they've been helped out by that, by having a poison populist at the head of the Republican Party right now. And the Republicans say, look at how these people are trying to destroy our culture and who and what we are. They're nuts. And you have to make a choice. Very hard, which is why the fastest growing population in the American electorate is the nonpartisan. The independent is the 42% of people now identify as that. So there's hope. And Sturm and Drang was be enough for me. When he used that German phrase, Sturm and Drang, that shows a level of intellectual curiosity in this book. That's good enough for me. Sturm and Drang, <laughs> that's great. I thought that that was like, you know, what I saw on a label on one of the shirts that my wife gets me that I don't wear because I'd rather wear this ugly shit. But um, it means like uh, lightning and thunder is a German phrase. But I, I think that the intelligence that you put throughout this book and helping people understand the why and the how is very good. My question for you is this, the heartbreak that may come on this road that you are on. Now you're living it for yourself and for your family. So that's fine. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, gee, I hope people get this. And I would really love for this to catch on. I think it would be really good for us. Are you prepared for what happens if, People reject that, and it keeps going the way that it is now, despite whatever success comes with the book. I'm 100% prepared for that. This is a this is a shot in the dark. This is a, a flare gun of hope and love and compassion in a very dark night sky filled with missiles and filled with Sturm and Drang, as, as you've quoted. Um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, again, I feel like the stakes are really high. That's why I needed to write this book. And it's interesting. I just got back from a book tour. I went to like 10 or 12 different cities, including like Ann Arbor, Cedar Rapids, Bellingham, Washington, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I went kind of off the beat, okay. beaten track a little bit. And there is a hunger for these ideas. And I don't have the answers. I'm not. And one of the things I try to do in Soul Boom is I really make sure that I'm 
I'm not a guru. I'm not especially wise. I'm well-read. I've suffered a lot. I have some ideas in this regard. I draw on some rich Baha'i spiritual traditions and ideas uh, in the book, but I don't have the answers. I simply have a lot of questions, but these are conversations like the one that we're having right now that people need to be having. And I, I don't expect the book to create a revolution, but I do expect bringing this idea to the forefront that spiritual questions and concepts need to be looked at, investigated, explored, dived into is crucial for our development, both on a personal level, again, that Kung Fu level, and on a collective level, the Star Trek level. So I just want to get people, especially young people, young people that are lost, might be suffering from this mental health epidemic, to get them thinking about this stuff and talking about this stuff. Then that's where my win is. What was the most common sticking point in these different communities that you entered in terms of what people thought was keeping them from being more this way, individually or collectively? Well, I feel like the book has touched a nerve where there's a lot of people that are, you know, they're not, you know, maybe they're in a church, but they're not completely committed to their church, or maybe they're a bit alienated. Maybe they're um, agnostic. They are hungry for spirituality and they're hungry for community and love and exploration of the divine and the sacred and the holy in their lives. And there's just, there's a hunger there and a longing there in a big segment of the population. And they don't know where to find it or where to go other than the odd podcast here or there. So they're Uh, there was an incredibly positive reaction to the book, which I was, Chris, I didn't know. I spent COVID in my underwear at this desk writing this book because I wasn't working as an actor because not much stuff was getting shot during COVID. And uh, I didn't know what people's reaction were going to be to the guy who played Dwight in The Office writing a book about spirituality. And, you know, it's been pretty damn positive. And, but it has been the 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 nuns, the politically independent folks, and and the other nuns that is the largest growing population is the spiritual but not religious. The people that check none on the survey, none, N-O-N-E-S, they're called nuns. None of the above is what church they belong to. That's the largest growing spiritual denomination in the United States. And They've been drawn to the ideas in the book. I've been, it's been great. So I just, I just want to foster a conversation and uh, I'm really glad that you're a part of it. It's, you know, we're in a weird, look, this is everything about this place is weird. Uh, This, this country is one of one. Nobody has a constitutional democratic republic the way we do. Nobody has this kind of diversity and the lack of homogeneity. I mean, it's called an experiment for a reason, but it is interesting to me how how touchy a subject this can be because we've never had fewer people expressing uh, religiousness. You know, I'm a Catholic, you know, that's what I am. Uh, or I'm a Presbyterian or, you know, everything that happened from the Protestant Reformation has largely broken down in American society. And yet people feel if they want power, if they want to be respected, they have to identify with believing in God. And there is something suspicious about what is called ethical culture or ethical humanism, um, which is where I don't believe that there's any 
larger intelligence in the world other than mine, but I do believe in some ideas and values uh, and principles that transcend my own existence that beg for uh, a, a devotion to something bigger than myself. People don't want to say that because, oh, mm. wait, so you're an atheist? So you're, an, so you're, an, you're one of those? I often say to people, so here's the proposition. Somebody has a gun to the head of one of your kids and they say, is there a God? What are you going to say? Um, and, you know, that would be a really hard question for a lot of people to answer that way. If the guy, if he doesn't like the answer, uh, is going to shoot your kid. And I, I, I think that it sets up a false standard for people who want to adhere to what they think will be accepted and acceptable. And that's what needs to change. And the question becomes, what is the catalyst for change in a culture that is flying in one direction and is unmoored by anything other than trends? And what is cool one minute is out the next. And what you can say one moment, you can't the next. It's, it shows a desperation, a searching, a reaching. And too often in our collective experience, which is pretty young by most countries' measurement, is crisis, crisis. And how big a crisis would you need? But I do believe that you waging this effort is really, really meaningful. And I think your timing is great. And I love that you wrote it during the pandemic because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people's head was where yours was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the religion question is interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, so you wrote a book for people that are spiritual but not religious? And I was like, well, no, not really, because I do talk about religion a good amount in the book. For me, I jettisoned my Baha'i faith when I was going through my 20s. I was living in New York City and a struggling theater actor. And I talk about, you know, the suffering that I underwent at that time, mental health, anxiety and depression and addiction. And long story short, I won't go into it right now, but I found my way back to the faith of my childhood. And I do feel that one thing that I had done was I threw out the spiritual baby with the religious bathwater. And I think that's what we've done collectively, that we've jettisoned religion in large part through a majority of the country, other than, you know, big chunks of the Bible belt. And, but even there, young people are leaving the church, you know, in record numbers. And for good reason, there's been a lot of corruption there's, you know, no one wants to hear that they're going to hell if they masturbate or decide to marry a Jewish person or anything like that. No one wants to believe in a scowling, judgmental, patriarchal God, or as I call him, Sky Daddy. Um, and uh, you, there's a lot of reasons why people have abandoned the, you know, organized religion. And people say, I could never be a part of organized religion. Well, guess what? We've lost a lot in the doing. You know, we've lost a lot in doing that. There are a number of things that an organized religion does give us and have given us. And guess what? Those are kind of the things that we need right now. Now, I'm not advocating that everyone run and find the, the church or mosque or synagogue of your dreams and go join that. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about, but we just need to have this conversation that church gave us transcendence an idea that we were in service to something greater, that our material life and comfort was less important than a life of service to others and the development of our soul. 
It brought us, you know, community and a community engaged in service to something larger. Prayer, communalness, you know, meditation, song. And there's nothing more powerful than people gathering under a roof just singing together about love. It's a very powerful thing. The list goes on and on of what we've lost. And that kind of community where you would gather with your neighbor that might have different political views than you in loving convocation is really important. So we just need to be talking about that and uh, and investigating it. So, you know, that's why I, I have a chapter called, Hey Kids, Let's Build the Perfect Religion where I create soul boom, the religion kind of with a tongue in cheek. I don't, I have no desire to have any religion associated with this book, but to say, let's take the very best aspects of the world's faiths and put them in a soup and, you know, create a religion around it. What would that look like just to get again, young people having this conversation and looking at religion through a new lens. It's a, it's a kind of a, tired old lens of like, oh, religion sucks. I want nothing to do with it. It's like, okay, that's a good knee-jerk reaction. I get it. It's very, very well, uh, understandably motivated. Now let's talk about what the intersection of religion, spirituality, and community does give us. I think you're spot on. You get a big amen from me. And look, we all know these realities of uh, what the limitations are, what the potential is. I mean, we know what the problem is with religion. It's not so much the nature of the faith in most cases, it's how it's practiced. And, you know, we're in a situation now where when I see a crucifix next to somebody's name on social media, I am waiting for an ass beating because they tend to be the most judgmental, least WWJD, yeah. least Christian people in terms of their animus because they believe that saying what you uh, believe in is more important than living it. And proselytizing is more important than performance. And that's what turned people uh, on religion as much as anything else. But it did not remove the need for galvanizing virtue and beneficial practices and behaviors. And we talk about it all the time. And what's so interesting is we are consumed with the self-help industry. The self-help industry is booming. Now, mm -hmm. there are a couple of reasons for it. One that's good for you is hunger for a way to be better people and to maximize ourselves. And it's not just about having a six pack. It's about, you know, having a six pack soul of where, you know, there's virtue and there's uh, an idealism and there's a, a transcendence and there's an aspirational aspect to your life. There's meaning, there's purpose. And the other reason is, not so good, which is a uniquely American appetite for the easy, which is the root of everything. Nobody wants hard. Even you using the word suffering, I suffered. Uh, I am consumed with struggle and suffering because to me, it is the great equalizer. Everybody struggles, but we don't like to talk about it. Why? Because it's weakness. And we don't like to talk about it. Why? Because it's going to be compared and someone's going to tell us that we're wrong to feel the way we do. And we hate the rejection of something that is so important to us. So we just rather not talk about it. And we don't discuss how to struggle and how to suffer and how to see it, except in the self-help industry. But even then, people are so desperate for the three rules, for the secret, for the seven habits, for the, the, for the easy way 
to get through something when the reality is, and your book's reality is, this is simple, but it's not easy. It's hard, but everything in our lives and everything that we tell our kids and everything that we once said is that everything that matters in life is hard. Anytime you take the easy route, like even kindness, you know, if there's anything that Jesus's message was supposed to convey to people is it's hard to love mercy. You got to turn your cheek seven times 70, whatever the hell that means in a, in a non-math oriented nation, you know, that you got to let people nail you to a cross because you love everybody else so much that it's going to be okay, even though you're a superhuman. That's a powerful message. That's a hard message. Um, that's why there was only one of them, you know, in Christian reckoning. And we're waiting for a second one. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And that's something that we accept as a value everywhere else in society. I want to make money, but I want it to be easy. I want to get rich quick scheme. They're very popular, but they also get condemned. I want to be in shape, but I want it to be with a really easy diet where I can eat bacon and eggs every day. Um, we kind of laugh that off as anything other than a ploy. But when it comes to what matters most, which is our collective destiny, we are kind of turning a blind eye to the fact that this is going to be hard, but you got to do what's hard if you want to get to what's good. That's, that's so well said. And, and that's, that's folded into the DNA of my book uh, in a number of different ways. And contemporary spiritual thought is all about that. It's consumerist. So I have anxiety. I feel disconnected. I feel fear. Um, what can I do to feel connected and to soothe my anxiety? Oh, here's an app I can use. I can do cold plunges. Um, I can do a quick three-minute meditation. I can read uh, this roomy quote on my Instagram. I can listen to this podcast. And then, ah, I feel relief from the, from the suffering and the anxiety. And now I can just go back to my 50-hour work week, 60-hour work week, try and make tons of money, you know, just go back to my kind of like self-involved life. Now, I'm not trying to mock people that are seeking spiritual serenity. We should. You know, it starts. We, we have to have a meditation practice, connect with nature, um, understand mental health tools for our well-being. But we can't stop there. So again, this goes to that other spiritual path. Then we recharge our spiritual batteries in that way so that we can go help others. The Buddha said, go forth with compassion and reduce the suffering of others. It's the same task that Jesus charged his apostles with. Let people know of salvation, of the message of love of the Father. And you're absolutely right. Like to all too many times in contemporary Christian faith, it's, I believe in Christ, therefore I'm saved and I don't need to do any work in my life. But Jesus' brother James said, faith without works is dead. Without works, where are the works? We have to do the works, which is reducing the suffering of others. There's a number of ways to do that. We've talked about them, some of them, working in the grassroots, working to build something, staying out of partisan politics, which by the way, have a lot to do with those people on Twitter with the little crosses by their names because everything has become politicized. Vaccines became politicized. Education is politicized. You know, social media is politicized. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, Jesus, I don't know that Jesus would approve of being angry and judgmental and conspiratorial. I, it, I, I just don't. 
I don't buy it for a second. But putting that aside, when we go serve others and we take that spiritual impulse that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, then we want to go remind other people of that same fact, serve them, love them. And in the doing, we recharge our own spiritual batteries, which positive psychologists and social psychologists have pointed to that actually we gain more happiness and well-being and fulfillment by being of service to others and putting our own egos aside. And that makes us feel even more fulfilled. And then our capacity becomes larger to go serve even more. So there's this yin-yang dance of spiritual service that we can all engage in. You don't have to be, you know, a ruggedly, wildly handsome former sitcom actor to do it. Everyone can be involved in this process to make the world a better place. And you have to be right. And not just about your personal aesthetic assessment, because there is no ancient wisdom, faith, or spiritual or religious reckoning that doesn't agree with you. You can pick whatever you want. You can pick whatever tradition yep. you want. Knock yourself out. Every one of them leads back here. You want to go Eastern? Cool. Um, yep. uh, Buddha, uh, Buddha's real name was Siddhartha. Before that, that meant open to all in service. Um, you know, Buddhists say life is suffering and you're trying to heal the suffering as many as you can. Um, the uh, Judaism, uh, which is, you know, the oldest within the Judeo-Christian uh, and Islamic ethics uh, or, or institutions, um, uh, tikkun olam, uh, repair the universe. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, Sadaka is the idea of uh, charity uh, writ large in terms of what are you doing for everybody else? You know, obviously we talked about Christianity. People know Jesus's message, whether they follow it or not. So these are all the oldest ideas. The Stoics said the right, the, the same thing. I mean, they were fine with monotheism, but they, they, they are virtues. They had four cardinal virtues. Um, wisdom, which was, was largely went into not just understanding things, but understanding others. Uh, justice, which was about making sure there's fairness for others. Um, courage, which was about having the strength of character to do what's right for others. You know, I mean, it's it's always been all over the place. So then the question that becomes hard, which is why I like the book, which is why I was very anxious to get Rain on the show, is, but I really need this put into a practice for me. I got to get the why, but I kind of already understand the why. I've had it around me my whole life. The book does that. Soul Boom is a worthy read, but more to me, a worthy practice. Go through the book a little at a time. Don't rush through it. If you want to rush through it, fine. But have the discipline to go back. That's the fourth cardinal virtue, by the way, within uh, Stoicism is, is discipline. Okay. Um, and go chapter by chapter because he's done a lot of work for you. He's done a lot of work and he's made it really appetizing. But go chapter by chapter and try to put it into your life. See if you can put it into practice. See if you can do it a week later when you forget about the chapter. And I think it's a really great guide. And Rain, I'm really happy that I discovered uh, this aspect of you and your offering as a human being, as a father, as a husband, and as an artist. And I really appreciate it. And I think Soul Boom is a great book. And I recommend it highly, and I can't wait to finish it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Chris. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, yeah, let's, let's start a revolution, baby. I told you, Soul Boom. 
no joke. It's good to have good minds who believe in better grappling with the problems that surround all of us. Isn't it a worthy read and a book I have already given to multiple people and with good reason. And I will probably read it again. I hope that more than reading it, it resonates and that you think about finding something within yourself to help get you and others around you to a better place. Thank you for subscribing, following, giving News Nation a shot. I'll see you there at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock Eastern. As soon as you can find it, it'll be great to have you, and I'll see you here again. Don't forget to wear your independence. Get the free agent merch. That is the solution to our political ills. We got to get away from the parties, and it begins with you. See you soon. Take care of yourself and take care of those you care about. 